Hey, by the way, if you are joining us from Startups to the Rest of Us, welcome. Thanks for checking out our podcast. This episode is pretty typical of what you will get on The Art of Product. Derek and I each take a few moments to talk about what's going on in the businesses that we're involved in. Uh, We talk about our weeks a little bit, and then we dive into a little bit of technical advice. Derek shares some ideas from the drip trenches about how they keep shipping fast a few years into their Rails journey. And this is a a pretty good representative snapshot. So if you like it, I hope you subscribe and uh, we'll see you in the future. Good morning. Morning. How are you? I am good. My uh, my sleep is getting a little disrupted recently, and I realized that there's this interesting uh, drawback, I guess, of being able to set your own schedule, which is when I mess my sleep gets messed up, I can just sleep later, which means I don't like if you are forced to get up for something, you're more tired that evening, so you actually kind of get back on your schedule. But for for me, I just kind of keep drifting later. <laughs> And then it's like, oh, podcast morning, and I have to I get up at a, like a normal human hour, and it's like, whoa, why does like nine thirty feel so early all of a sudden? Yeah. Do you have a particular reason why you want to stay on a schedule, or are you naturally more a night person where you like would prefer to get up later and stay up later? Yeah, I, I definitely am more of a night person naturally, but I'm not convinced that's like a great way to be. Like, it doesn't lead me to be like more happy. I would say. Um, it's, it's good to be up when other humans are up and feel responsible and productive. So I try to fight that urge to some extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know the days I get up really early once I'm like going and caffeinated and feel good, then it like, I feel super accomplished that I've managed to get up early. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So, yeah, I also, do you ever use the app, uh, pocket? Uh, yeah, actually I, I tag, I bookmark lots of things in it, but I never actually look at them. That is exactly That's how I pattern. use it. <laughs> I was just, I, I wonder how many people have that, that pattern to it. Cause it's like a read later app. It's like Instapaper or something like that. And I basically use it as like, this looks like an interesting article. I should read this and I throw it in pocket and then that's the last I ever think of the article. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. It just gives me that feeling of like, I'll surely come back to this someday. Yep. I used to do it in my browser bookmarks and I would have, I would try to like sometimes organize them or I would just have like a misc folder that was just ever growing. And, um, at a certain point I, I always end up declaring bankruptcy on those folders. Like this is too, this is terrible. Like I have links in there that are now dead from two years ago. And then I just have deleted the folder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every so often before a flight, I will like open up the app and sync it and be like, ah, oh, I'll read, I'll, I'll read some of these articles on the plane. And then I get in there and it's like, there's 200 interesting looking articles and then like it's just like too too much interesting and i just bail out because it's overwhelming yep it's a weird a weird human way to be it is i mean i wonder if there should be like a a natural decay built into pocket or something where yeah it will expire and go away forever if you don't read it yeah i i think that might be the way that all inboxes should work See, when I, when I click the button, it's like, ah, okay, this is now in a place and surely I will come back and actually read this. And if I knew it might, it was going to decay, it might not give me that same warm, fuzzy feeling, even though the warm, fuzzy feeling is irrational because I won't actually go back and read it. Right. Yeah. There's a certain calmness to knowing something is sitting in an inbox and you can always get to it later. Um, so maybe it's not totally deleted, but maybe it's like this, this is in your bucket of things that you've said you told me you were interested in reading soon. And if you don't get to it by then, then we put it in some deep archive and you can get to it if you really want to. But 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure that giving myself that feeling of ah yes I've I've placed this somewhere is the right move. Yeah, it's just like encouraging procrastination. <laughs> uh, or something. Yeah, it feels like cheating. It's like ah oh, you get that dopamine hit of like ah oh, this is the right thing to do with this information, but no actual real benefit. Do you know what actually does have benefit though that I did do this week? What? Which is um, a weekly review. Huh performance review of yourself <laughs> uh no it's, it's more like a uh task review of my life it's like what are what are all the projects i have going on what are the actions for those projects um i basically so i, I go through i use OmniFocus to manage my to-dos and i reviewed every project in it and also just swept a lot of stuff out of my head um, I was getting, I was realizing I was getting more and more, there were more and more things that were in my mind, like, oh, and then that'll come after that. And then this will come after that. Because um, like I mentioned before, life is getting more advanced. It's getting more complicated in the next handful of weeks. And it was just that feel, that feeling of, um, I guess, anxiety was building a bit where it's like, I don't know if I'm thinking of all the things I need to think about. And so I spent, I mean, it took a solid two and a half hours probably to really get things organized and, and feel like I had, I got everything out, but it's so nice to be able to step back and look at like, okay, there's a lot on the list, but at least it's on a list. Yeah. I love that feeling. <laughs> so actually something somewhat related to that. Um, I was just noticing this morning. So I remember when I, I talked about um, dialing down my GitHub notifications so that Ideally, only the things relevant to me that I actually have to follow up on would be sitting in my, uh, basically my GitHub queue um, of notifications, right? That's been working well overall, but I encountered there are a few conversations that I saw pop up in my um, GitHub notifications feed. And it's like things unread, but things where people are um, asking for me to to comment on. And um, so I read I read the notification and you know click through on GitHub to view the issue and saw so like okay Derek what do you think about this and um, I'm like yes I want to respond to that not at this very second though but now it's like marked as unread and so what do I do how do I keep track of that you know and I've got now at, at any given day I have like probably ten of those at any given time that need that are asking for my follow up and um, dude just just put it in pocket. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> That's the solution. <laughs> yeah. Surely you'll get, you'll get back to it. Yeah, right. I do have email notifications also coming from GitHub, but the problem is I'm always clicking to view them on GitHub and that doesn't then go mark my email as read in my inbox. So I end up clicking over after a day or two and see, you know, 165 unread GitHub notifications in my email inbox. And it's like, well, most of those I've followed up with. Ten of them I haven't, but I need to go like find those ten. I don't know. So I guess so. One thing that pops to mind is if you're not in the mode of actually working on the GitHub notifications, then you shouldn't be reading the GitHub notifications. Like if you're just kind of like glancing at stuff, then don't glance at them. And, and like getting things done, I, I think separates phases like that pretty clearly where there's like you're sweeping things which is just like get stuff out of your head and into a place and then you're processing the things you've swept out which are like is this thing actually a to-do item that i'm going to do can i delegate this can i delete it but you don't actually you're not doing it at the time and then there's actually like working on the things that are in your system right and it sounds yeah. like you're mixing the phases a little bit 
I think it's like I when I see the dot, I don't know, it's that it's the blue dot on GitHub. It's the red dot on Slack. I, I think I need a plug in to hide that dot because something compulsive in me, like I, I often don't go and check Twitter and Hacker News these days while I'm working, but I will click through to that dot and see what's waiting for me when there's a small gap of time, which is probably not a good thing. I shouldn't be doing that, um, but I can't help it. And sometimes things are time sensitive. So then I do try to stay on top of them and look and see, is this time sensitive right now or can it wait for later? But as soon as I open it, it is now dismissed from my notifications queue. So then I like have to either file it somewhere else or respond to it right away. And that creates yeah. anxiety. That's a little tricky. Like you could argue that GitHub should give you a Marcus on red option, but maybe more ideally you would just have like you would like hide the dot, I guess, if it's if it's like a compulsion for checking it, and just like a couple times a day, you have a scheduled time where you go through and process all that end to end, not like glance at it. So maybe I don't know. Maybe there's a browser plugin that'll hide the dot. Then I would have to implement a policy where like if there's something high, if there's something urgent that you need my response on, then you need to hit me up somewhere else other than the GitHub issue because I only check those at set times of the day. Is there stuff that's more ur- like that's more urgent than that? I mean, sometimes, like if there's an ongoing thing or troubleshooting or something, then I mean, I, then I guess it's likely to be being discussed in Slack or something. And maybe I make things out to be more urgent than they are sometimes, but I, I do have a sense where I don't want pe- anyone to be blocked. And if someone just like throws something out there waiting on my feedback and then, I don't know, when I happen to check it a day later, I realize, oh my gosh, this person has been totally stuck for the last day because they were waiting on my response. It'll be a constant battle, I'm sure, whatever you choose. Yeah, I think I'm just going I'm going to be trying to proactively solve that. I mean, it's it's always the struggle, I guess, but I'm going to keep fighting that fight. <laughs> Do you use Adblock or or Ublock or things like that? Mm, I don't. No. Oh, wow. Well, first of all, go install Adblock. Um it'll make your life better. You can tell it that certain things on a page are ads. And so you could say that little blue dot notification is an ad and it should just hide it. I do that on, on a bunch of sites where it's like there's a little element that annoys me and I'm just like, this is an ad. Don't ever show it again. <laughs> nice. It, okay. It works pretty well. That. Ad blockers um, annoy me from the technical side because they often will block the drip JavaScript, even though we're not an ad platform. So I kind of have like a <laughs> like a disdain for them from that. <laughs> I've whitelisted you. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first thing I do on any browser is install ad blocking or like uBlock Origin or something because it's just I find it's like too obnoxious to be on the internet at all without it. Yeah, yeah. I should probably give that a shot. Yeah, we're getting your whole life straightened out here. Yeah, I like it. Cool. So yeah, I got my my projects all in a row, which is nice. There's still a ton of them, but now I can see them, and I am recording my last video today slash tomorrow which is very exciting or will it will it be will it be exciting when it's done that'll be nice i think this last video is going to be or this last video is going to be about form objects like creating an object to back a, like a more complex form yep, good topic yeah like rails apps are basically a bunch of forms at, yep. at, at their heart <laughs> and so i realized i had talked a lot and i wasn't talking much about forms and i was like i should absolutely have at least one video on on this concept which is like what do you do when the form gets nasty and creates right. lots of objects and things like that so you don't you don't do accepts nested attributes for right C- correct that's Thank actually going to be my like be- <laughs> that'll be like my before where it's like okay if you just did what rails said you would use accept nested nested attributes for but here are the downsides and here's what i would do instead yeah so it's nice to know the topic and i have the outline for the thing and so i'm cruising towards the end of that 
um, which is nice. That'll be a great milestone to hit. There'll be lot, lots more to do after, but at least the videos will be done. I also have this this funny pressure where I downloaded a copy of uh, Final Cut Pro uh, trial and the trial expires in like three or four days. <laughs> so it's like if I finish all my editing, I don't I don't have to buy this. And it's like 300 <laughs> bucks or something. So it's like, OK, yeah, another incentive to just get get all this done. But then I'll be like in the situation where it's like, oh, I found an error in one of the screencasts and I could just go back and make the edit in Final Cut Pro, <laughs> but it'll cost me $300. So, ben Orenstein plus two at gmail.com uh, yeah, brand right. new trial <laughs> yeah there i may i may do some some tomfoolery like that yeah also hey i, tr- I tried out a thing I had a little experiment that i ran um which is you know, there's a thing that got added in drip for adding a call to action button in emails uh which i thought was very cool uh and it's something that i had done by hand in the past um and now there's like a, a thing for it for me um in the in the campaign i tried it on i noticed that my clicks actually dropped a bit with the the button versus a single link yeah i was getting like 40 percent click-through rate on an email and the button got about 25 percent. and it wasn't a ton of data so like maybe this is just totally an invalid experiment but at least uh with with my audience it didn't seem to be doing so hot okay that would be an interesting thing for us to run i wonder if we could how easy it would be to get at that data of like comparing the click-through metrics yeah it might be feasible for us to do and it'd probably be good to sanity check it um i know we've been working through some little edge cases in different email clients for the styling on that button i mean it's it's insane how much effort you have to put into one stupid button to get it to look right in most email clients so i mean it it is possible that some client might have may have viewed it as like partially unstyled so it didn't look like a link I suppose that's possible in in their email client. You know, we obviously do litmus testing and I think we covered like a, a large percentage of clients, but there there definitely is a long tail of them. So I don't know. I wouldn't expect it to have that big of an impact, but me either. And my, my audience, I would imagine, uses much more nerdy email clients. Like there's got to be some um, what's that client? Uh, mutt. I got to have some mutt people on my on my list. Or, or it just also may be that like with my audience, the programmer types emails that contain more HTML are probably much more likely to be marked as spam by them in the past, right? So it just could be like the more tags you have in an email, the worse it performs for programmers. Yeah, um, it could but, be. Yeah. And I mean, we've we found like over time that plain t- the more plain text looking things are, the better you are often because it feels like a personal email. And maybe a button is a sign that it, maybe it sets off like a, this is a marketing email flag in people's minds and makes them less... Uh, likely to engage with it. I don't know. Could it could be? I yeah, could, I could see my my folks being of that mindset mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. It'd be like, hey, Ben's emailing me again, or what? Ben's sending me a marketing email. That's like two different right. frames of mind, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So I figured I'd share that data in case it's useful cool. to people. Yeah, that's a good data point to look into that. Yeah. So uh, what's up with you? Oh, you know, fighting the good fight, scaling. Yeah, not much. <laughs> I don't know, not much more to update on. We've just been like, I've been in deep in the uh, in the trenches this last week. It feels like so. What part of the system are you working on scaling? Been doing a, a bit of um, still just a lot of strategizing on architecture with with the back end team. In this last week, we onboarded one of our biggest customers ever to be on Drip, mm. and I think they. Congrats. 
Thanks. Yeah. They... <laughs> You're like, it's not a congrats. I don't, I'm not happy at all. <laughs> From the technical side, I'm not too happy. But I think what happened is they they uh, imported their entire list. And I think that it contains more subscribers than they technically want to have. But I think they they still need to do some some filtering and some removal of different segments that probably shouldn't be on there. So but in the meantime, they've been doing they've been generating some segments on like a couple million subscribers and it's been definitely straining the system in ways that it hasn't been strained before. It's, I mean, these are always good opportunities to, to test the limits of different systems. But, I mean, ideally, you wouldn't be doing that with a real customer. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, there's a little bit of time pressure, it feels like, built in because now this customer is kind of waiting on things to perform better than they are right now. Um, so, you know, a little bit under the gun on that. Gotcha. Um, yeah. That makes sense. You just sign a huge deal and then it's like, oh, yeah, sorry, it's slow. We'll, we'll get right on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, like and a bummer. I mean, in our defense, like the initial numbers were like several times smaller than what they have turned out to be on subscriber list size. So, you know, we we have justification to say, like, look, when we were initially talking, your subscriber list was this and now it's, you know, a couple times bigger. So things aren't quite performing the way that maybe you were what maybe what your expectations were in the first place but okay well good luck yeah so you and i talked offline and i was planning on asking you a question on the show which is so i'm working on this course right now and the the core of the course is basically around how do you keep shipping quickly when the rails app is you know a year a couple of years old it's easy in the be everyone can go fast for the first six to twelve months but it's tricky later on. And as a customer and as your friend, I just I feel like you have like I have a pretty good window on what's going on and you you still with a, with a large team and with an older app and a high scaling demand, it still feels like you're putting out stuff really fast. And I was curious if there are things that you're doing that are maybe like a little bit lesser known, uh, a little, little less common that might help other people go fast too. Yeah, sure. So I don't know. I kind of just started brain dumping in preparing to address this. Um, and so some of these things may not be super unique to us, but I thought it would be could be fun to just kind of like go through high level the way I think about our process and how it helps us keep shipping fast. Yeah, I guess the lesser known part is is not that important because people know different things. So yeah, right. To me, like as I started to jot down notes, a lot of it boils down to what I see is like actively combating legacy. You know, like you said, it's easy to move fast in your first year, but sometimes moving fast means you're moving fast at the expense of future productivity. And I see basically anything that is fast at the beginning and gets slower over time as legacy. Like that is perhaps one way to define legacy in a code base. Although the thing that pops into my mind when you say that is that I think it's hard to know you're making that trade-off. Like I think people imagine like, oh, we'll cut corners to go fast now and we'll pay for it later. But I think a lot of the times you're accidentally making legacy decisions just because like you don't you don't know what the future is going to look like. And so you make assumptions like you're always making assumptions and choosing one set of trade-offs. And sometimes it turns out later like you didn't do that to go faster then. You just made the best choice you could. And in reality, it turns out not so good later. Right. No, and I think that's true. And those are the most those are the trickiest ones to get out ahead of. Definitely. Like, I think we can all agree that test coverage from day one is something you should be doing. And I mean, 
with that being said, like we know this to be true, and yet you still see startups um, choosing to like we're just going to get our MVP out, and no, we didn't write tests on the MVP, but you know we wanted to get it to market quickly, and I think yes, getting to market quickly and getting validation is important. But if there's any chance, unless you're planning on completely throwing away that code base and starting from scratch once you've validated it, then you should never, you know, start without test coverage. Um, I, yeah, agreed with that. Agree with both of those. And I would add an, another warning, which is that it is incredibly hard to throw away working code. So I've seen people be like, oh, this is the MVP. We're going to throw it away when we're done. It is so hard to do that. You will be shocked at how much you want to just keep moving forward on the MVP. And so like, beware of that idea. I'm not even sure that's, that really works. I'm glad you said that because like, I would personally, I mean, part two of that is I would never advise to take that approach because you, if you're investing all this time into something, you want to build on that investment. You never want to throw away the whole kernel of a product. You know, I mean, there's no point in doing that. Every week that goes by, we learn something new and if we're doing our jobs right, we end up adding something new to the code base. It's either catching an edge case in behavior that had not previously been known and now we know it. And these things compound over time, which is why I'm also really skeptical of rewrites. You know, I mean, Basecamp has convinced me that it, it is possible to like reinvent your product multiple times because they seem to have done it successfully. But I think when I initially saw that they were like, hey, we're rewriting Basecamp from scratch, I was like, wow, you're actually sacrificing a lot of learnings that are built into the code over time. And I think it's worked for them because they haven't tried to reinvent the same exact product. They've rethought much of the details of how it works, you know, so it's essentially new. But if you're just trying to say like, uh, we need to, we have too much tech deck, we need to burn it all to the ground and start from scratch, then uh, maybe it'll be more pristine, but you're going to have all, you're going to go through all the pains of catching all those edge cases again that, you know, that you've previously hardened in your code base. And chances are you'll you'll make glorious new mistakes in your rewrite. Right. Yep. Like you'll avoid because some of the old mistakes, but yeah. Yeah. Because we're humans and we're operating in production, which is kind of chaos. <laughs> so I think, you know, tests is like, you know, that's probably we can all agree on that. But I also think like at a certain point we added static analysis, like Rubocop, into our um, CI chain. And I really wish we would have done that from day one. Um, because we were able to kind of like correct a lot of inconsistencies. But if we had had that in from day one, I think it would have what it would have done is reduced the amount of human intervention we would need on any given pull request to get things into a consistent state. And, mm. and you're talking um, about style mostly here? Yeah, style. And I mean, it, it also enforces, I mean, there's like, you know, syntax and then there's style things like method length. And I mean, it has all kinds of rules that you can apply. So some of it is just more surface level and some of it is like deeper code smells and things. Does your CI build fail on a method that's too long? Yes. Interesting. So, What's your limit? Um, it's pretty high actually right now. And sometimes we will, sometimes we will like increase the, the limit if we feel like this method warrants, uh, you know, like we, we don't feel like we really need to break up this method. So we'll go modify the Rubocop config file. But what that forces you to do is make a conscious decision. Like um, instead of just saying, instead of just making it a policy where like Rubocop will run, but it's all optional and we can choose to ignore it on the fly. I think it's far better to say like, we can, we can change the rules, but that needs to be a deliberate decision. And it'll show up in the diff that Rubocop.yaml was changed 
at this moment in time. And it's like, you know, and then we can go back and reevaluate whether that was a good decision or not. But if you make too many things optional, then then it just is up to developer discretion. And we all, me included, rage against RuboCop from time to time. It's like, dang it, RuboCop, why are you so strict? But it mm. pays dividends in the end. Um, so, yeah, I think like warnings at all during tests are like just kind of a smell. Yeah, I think you either make it fail the test suite or don't. But it's probably not worth it if you're not going to actually fail. Yep. And I think I think the the sooner you get static analysis into your pipeline, the the less painful it is. So we had to start out with a big old and RuboCop's nice because it lets you do it lets you like generate a to do file. So it'll say like let's get RuboCop in a passing state, and it'll put all the failures into a to do. And we had several thousand to start with, or I don't know if it was like several thousand individual rules, but total number of failures was in the thousands, I think. And we gradually whittled them away. And it does have auto-correction. So like getting your quoting syntax all consistent, you can just have RuboCop automatically do that and things like hash syntax, um, which is really cool. Did you do a giant style change commit at some point? I believe so, or a series of them. I think probably one per major rule. Um, so like one one giant commit to do all of the hash syntax and one for quoting and, you know. Why do you think that helps you ship faster? So a, a second part is that we have rigorous code review anytime something's going to go into the code base, which, you know, intuitively makes you think that would cause us to ship slower. But I think, you know, the, the more time we can chip away from that human code review, the better. And RuboCop is one thing that that basically does code review at an automated basis and doesn't require humans. Um, gotcha. So your code reviews can focus on better things. Yep. Focus on more meaty things that a computer is not so good at necessarily mm-hmm. spotting. Okay. Um, I also feel like uh, like consistency in a code base helps any new engineer get up to speed faster and productive in the code base. If it's if it's a mess and every every file you open has a little bit different style, then it leaves more questions in your head on which one should I do, and and maybe you go look at more examples to try to get it get a gauge for what is the style of this code base. So I think the more consistent it is, the easier, the more confident new developers can contribute. Do you run RuboCop on new, on like files now on save? Um, I think some of us do have that set up in our editors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That workflow that I have, I do that in Elm uh, where like you run Elm format on save, just like have it just handle it. And it's, it's kind of, I really, I'm, I'm really enjoying that in Elm. It's like I just kind of put stuff wherever I want to in the code and then just hit save and it snaps into place. Yep. Yeah, I think some of us have. I actually don't have it set up in my editor, but I probably should. It's been on my to-do list to do. Um, I think some some folks have it in like a pre-commit hook. So it'll like the commit will fail if it doesn't pass or something. Um, unfortunately, we're at the phase where our, our test suite is prohibitively long to run on a local dev machine. So we have like massive parallelization in Circle CI, so it'll run it relatively fast in CI. So a lot of us rely on that to run the whole suite. Um, How long does that take? Right now we're at like ten minutes. Okay, on the so, on CI. On CI, yeah. And it'd be like hours on lo- your local machine, probably. I think it would probably be it'd probably be just under an hour. I think we're at six x. Yeah, it's it's interesting. That's that's another um, 
thing I've debated, like, should we invest the time to try to get those that test suite running faster? Or should we just throw more hardware at it? And I know like companies like GitHub say like we don't we explicitly don't try to keep make our test suite run fast. We just throw more hardware at it. Um, yeah, that's a thorny problem. I don't I'm not sure what to do there. Honestly, it's going to scale at least probably linearly with your code base. And so you're just going to keep writing more code, which means the tests are just going to get slower. So how much time is it worth investing in them? I'm not sure. Yeah, like if it takes a developer a handful of weeks to make some meaningful percentage impact on test time, like how much is that developer's time worth versus how much are we going to pay Circle to add a few more servers to run our tests in parallel? You know what I mean? Right. I guess if if it were the line between like, can I run these quickly on my own machine versus do I need to wait for CI? That's probably where it's like it's worth investing it. But if you're if it's big enough that it's like we have to wait for CI every time anyway, it's probably I don't know, like how much could you really knock off the test suite to make it worth it? Tough to say. We consciously do a lot of object, a lot of database record fabrication in our test suite because partially because Rails doesn't. Rails doesn't really decouple the database persistence from the actual active record object behavior very well, in my opinion. So like it's it is hard to test a lot of things without just persisting the records in the database um, in a way that actually simulates real life. And then I'm not a fan of like overly mocking and stubbing things to the point where it may not actually represent reality. You know, it works. (laughs) Another thing that has helped us is keeping our tech stack pretty simple for a long time. So we are still today predominantly a Rails monolith and we run on Postgres and we have Redis in the mix and we deploy to EC2. So we haven't gone like into, you know, containerizing everything and splitting everything up into microservices and, you know, introducing queues in between all the microservices as message brokers and like all this complexity where I I recognize we will probably have to do that. Like we are we're in some ways bursting at the seams in certain um, subsystems. And so we're actually starting to do that, but we're now at this point five years in, you know? So I think we've had the luxury of a simple stack and we're very carefully making it more complicated only in the ways that are going to help us scale, but still trying to keep, we're definitely not busting up the entire monolith. You know, the more simple you can keep your technologies to understand the faster you can move. And as soon as you're, as soon as you have a lot more moving parts where developers can't necessarily wrap their heads around things or where you have a bunch of different teams who are responsible for the different microservices. And now in order to get anything done, you have to get all these teams uh, collaborating together. Um, it just dramatically increases the amount of time it takes to, to push out a feature. Totally agree. I think you made a great choice there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we just kind of stumbled into that. I mean, just felt intuitive that like we should just try to keep this simple. And anytime, I mean, we, we've flirted with a lot of different technologies over the years. And, you know, should we should we invest in an alternative database? And it's like, well, actually, let's just see how far we can push Postgres. And it's gotten us pretty dang far. And so, so I, I expect things to slow down a bit the more complicated our system gets. Um, but hopefully not too slow (laughs) and i mean you're you're doing a crazy amount of volume and still keeping it in one app and it's working so yep and i think another one other thing i wanted to bring up is that we we have traditionally appointed one or more people to 
essentially take ownership of different areas of the code base. So we have a JavaScript guy who kind of owns the JavaScript code base. Our head designer owns the CSS code base. Me and a couple other team leads um, essentially own the Ruby code base. And so when things need to get reviewed and it's not super clear, it's not something that Rubicop would necessarily have an opinion on, but it's just matters of style and consistency and architectural patterns, then we generally look to one of the people who is considered an owner of that area of the code base and make sure that person is has sign off on it. And I don't know, again, this is another thing, I don't know how well it scales and it's something that we're feeling the pain of right now where we have some some people bottlenecks in the process. But we're potentially looking at a trade-off of relaxing that kind of gatekeeper ownership mentality over different parts of the code base. But in exchange, I think we're going to, it would be making, sacrificing a little bit of consistency and quality potentially. Um, so I think there's a balance to strike there. But again, this has served us well to keep a pretty tight rein on it. And, you know, we've managed to, to move pretty fast. Yeah, I think keeping the quality bar high, like consistency, I think is nice. It's like a small win, but the qu- keeping quality really high, I think is probably contributing quite a bit to being able to keep moving fast. Even when I'm working on a project that I know my code will be reviewed by somebody else, it's better code. I just like I know I know this is not up to snuff or like this won't pass code review and like I do my own review of my own diff and I'm like I just picture somebody saying something about this part so I'm just going to fix it now and the the code that actually hits master is better and I think that's that's got to be one of the highest contributors to being able to keep moving fast is you've you've made good to small decisions along the way. It's, I think that's when you really get bit is when it turns out you made like 40 bad small decisions over the last six months. And now you have to un you're now they're all fighting against you for this thing you're trying to write now. And that's when you really have that surprise feature that takes five X as long as you expect it will. Right. And that's why I think having some good processes built in, like requiring sign off, you know, requiring code review and sign off from someone who you know who you can trust has the same attention to detail on code quality. Um, and you know, requiring test coverage and and running CI and putting RuboCop, making it fail if it doesn't pass, and all these process things, I think help help you from death by a thousand paper cuts. Yep, I also think it just it's I think it combats a thing which is very natural, which is a little bit of blindness due to your focus on what you're doing. So I've opened pull requests before, and um. There's a, there's a format that I like for pull request messages, which is because XYZ in a bulleted list, this, compi- this commit XYZ in a bulleted list. And I've opened PRs before where like, because you know this thing is bad and this thing is bad, this commit does these things. And someone, the, the reviewer will take a look and say, you say that the goal is to do XYZ. And when I actually look at the code of the PR, it doesn't actually address X or why and it only kind of half addresses z and it's like I, i've had this experience where like wow yeah i i didn't actually do the thing that i thought that like i said was the goal like i've i've, I've barely improved the thing i meant to improve because i got just kind of lost on a thing like i i went down one path and it seemed right and now it works in the test pass so like let's let's ship this and it's like yeah but we didn't actually ship we're not shipping what we wanted to ship uh, and it's 
it's i think that's a very i think it's an easy thing to have happen to you and so just knowing that there are high quality reviewers that will step back and be like what were the goals and what did we do and what's what does this look like now is super yep. worth it yeah i think that's something that hasn't been codified in our process but i something i have debated doing is like because I'm personally a big fan of the to-do checklist in a PR. Um, I will usually try to open a PR early and then drop a checklist in the in the body of the PR that's like, here are the things that I want to accomplish. And if I think of something randomly as I'm working, it helps me keep my commits clean. If I can just add it to the to-do list instead of like just fixing it right there and creating a muddy commit, you know? And then that's a good checklist for the reviewer to look at, see those things checked off, and then they can kind of use that to verify, like, is this actually doing what what the author said it was going to do? So I really mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And and sometimes it's even like, do we still think this is a good idea? Like, we, this, this all made sense when we talked about it. And like, this sounded like a nice feature and a good thing to have. But looking at this, it's bringing a whole bunch of complexity in. Do we still, now that we know the cost, does it still seem like the benefit is worth it? And I've closed PRs before, just like, actually, you know what? Let's just not merge this. This this isn't worth it. And I, I, every time I do that, I, I, it's slightly frustrating, but I honestly, it feels like a win overall. Yeah. You know, I thought of one additional thing to add to this list. Okay. Um, Ooh, because a bonus. It has, yeah, a bonus. Because um, it's, it's something that uh, has helped us a number of times and... I'm always happy when I discover that we've done something in a certain way. And so that basically the idea is when we're looking at things at the data modeling level, like how are we going to architect the relationships between domain objects in the system, we tend to um, architect things in a one-to-many fashion, even if it's represented as a one-to-one fashion in the UI that generally helps us down the line if we decide like at a certain point we want to make this a one-to-many relationship the data model already supports it and it wasn't a lot of work to to implement as a one-to-many but just treat as a one-to-one if that makes sense Um, as opposed to saying like a user has one team you say users have many teams but then you write like a user.team method that just returns the first from that relation yes i could see that being useful yeah or like thinking about like that's a good that's a good thing like team membership like if you know you want to have you know multiple contributor roles down the line potentially then don't just have like owner id user it's like well go ahead and set up a user to a team with a membership that has a role of owner you know and then you can enforce in your domain logic you can enforce that there's only one owner but if you want to open up the possibility later on to have multiple owners well now you can just flex your domain logic and your data model doesn't have to change in a significant way that's really interesting i've never heard of that before but i could definitely see how that would make certain changes a lot easier because that's a classic uh change right it's like oh people used to have there used to be one of these things and now there's many of these things and if you've been disciplined about like law of demeter and things of that nature you can probably make that change without too much pain, but it is always some pain. It's always kind of annoying. So I could see how starting the the data model with that and then just having your objects kind of pretend that there's only one-to-one could make a lot of sense. I like that. So when you later change it, you're just changing the Ruby and you're not changing databases and tables and things like that. That's right. 
because interesting arguably you don't even have to sacrifice like true normalization like it's still a, a valid use case to have a a one-to-one with a join table but you know like the, the database will support it then if you want to go to one-to-many and so it's like you're not even having to really sacrifice good data modeling necessarily you're just anticipating what may happen in the future and i i feel like this does kind of um compete with the notion of like don't over engineer or don't over architect things but I think it's it's not that bad to at least do it at your database level and and where you think there may be a one to many, go ahead and just do implement it that way. Um, mm-hmm. That's interesting. It feels like this feels like a the the writ large version of sending keyword arguments into methods that only take one or two arguments. It's like later you might want to add another one of these, and it would be kind of nice to just be able to add it here and not change the signature in a million places. It's, it's added flexibility with it. It doesn't feel like much cost at all, actually. Yeah, that's what I found. And we were kind of guilty of not doing it this way at the very beginning. So I've talked about this before where like in, an, in Drip, a subscriber used to be hard-coded to a campaign and so did a form. So like one form could be associated with one campaign and a subscriber was associated with one campaign only at a time. And it was like, it took about one month before we decided that a subscriber needed to be in multiple campaigns at the same time. So like, had we just architected it that way from the beginning, which totally makes sense, even if you're going to only allow a subscriber to be in one campaign, just put a join table in there. Like don't put campaign ID on a subscriber, you know, and that would have saved us so much headache. (laughs) Yeah, I could definitely see that. Interesting. Good tip. Good bonus. Yeah. Perhaps the bonus was better than the whole uh, previous part. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Well, it was, it was certainly the nerdiest part, which yeah. kind of got my, my interest. You could write a 12-page ebook on this. This could be your <laughs> Derek's secret to flexible rails. There we go. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thanks for coming prepared with all that stuff. Yeah, you bet. Anything else you want to talk about before we sign off? I think I'm good. All right. Cool. Well, uh, have a great weekend. You too, man. And good luck with your final video. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to, to getting this thing shipped. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to artofproductpodcast.com and we'll see you next time.